Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Dustin Camilleri. Hey, Dustin. Hey. Just me and Dustin today, so we'll go straight into some comments. Our first comment comes via email from William Kyle Hughes. He says, hey, Tone Benders, I've been really enjoying the podcast. It's nice to listen to discussions from practical, professional perspectives. My question is this. I'd like to know what you all regularly use or prefer in terms of metering while you work, LEQ, RTA, spectrogram, nothing at all, etc., and how it changes the way you work. For example, using different meters when mixing or editing, too many windows, stealing screen space, window layouts, etc. Uh, Dustin, what do you use? I guess when you're doing sound design, what's your primary metering setup? I, I tend to keep my metering very simple, and the I just use the Duro meters from the Waves package. Yep. Um, I use it either in stereo or surround, and... It's wonderful. Works works perfectly. And then if I'm doing mix stuff, especially for broadcast, obviously I'm using some kind of LKFS meter, and I tend to use the Dolby uh, Media Meter V2. I figure, you know, that's what a lot of the QC is happening on, so I might as well use the same. My setup is basically the same. Uh, I use the Duro Waves meters. Back at the old studio, we had the actual Duro physical meters, and I loved those. Um, but we decided to go with the plugins in the new facility, and I do kind of miss my hardware meters because the plugins definitely do take up screen space, and it bugs me because I use. I mean, screen space is a premium for me for everything that I do. Absolutely, they work just as well. I mean, they they look beautiful, and they and you know they they do what I need them to do. Yeah, they work great, and they're very responsive. Um, I do have a dream of building a standalone box for the plugin. Yeah, there you go. So we'll see if we'll see if I can get there. But yeah, <laughs> you know, base it on a cheap like ARM PC design or something, just a little DIY thing with a small little uh, six channel input or something for surround work. The only thing keeping it away from like going to an iPad Mini or some sort of tiny Android tablet would be latency. Yeah, yeah. I haven't tried it. I mean, I think the latency on some of this stuff is very low. I mean, with the core audio support in the new iPad or new iOS. It's actually quite a robust audio system they have in there now. Yeah. And you can record with that uh, a lot of the actually a lot of the new multi-track recorders for the iPad can record 2496 up to 8 channels. Pretty amazing. Nice. Um the, we just recently upgraded two of our systems to HDX systems over here too, which gives us the uh, Pro limiter. Yep. That comes from DigiDesign and it's got LKFS in it and it's really nice. The Dolby Media Meter, which I have up in my session that I'm recording to right now, um, I probably shouldn't have up because the thing is buggy, and it really does mess with a lot of what's happening. It'll cause glitches and pops and that kind of stuff, and it's just – it's an unhappy plug-in. <laughs> it's one of the most unhappy ones we have. It is. It's a huge It's a huge pain in the ass. I tend to mix around dialogue, so I'll get the dialogue sitting at my minus 24 or minus 23, whatever the – the delivery spec is, and then yeah. I'll just turn it off and mix the rest of the project, and then I'll turn it back on and make sure I'm still where I need to be, tweak the little things I need to do. But I pretty much use it only at the beginning and just for dialogue, then it's off for the rest of the session because it's absolutely terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's just, oh, it just, it hates its own life, and it, and, it, and it brings me down with it. It does, yeah, for sure. I always mix in a calibrated environment at a specified level, too, and so over time, between my, between my durometers and my ears, I can pretty much hit the spec anyway. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, 
With regards to other metering, spectral metering, phase alignment metering, that kind of stuff, I don't tend to use a lot of that while I'm designing. Sometimes if something sounds weird, I'll break one of those open to check it. For example, I had a, um, I had one of my quad recordings that I had been doing recently had an air conditioner going in it, and the air conditioner sounded a little phasey in my surrounds. And so I broke out a phase scope on that and just touched a little delay to line my phase back up. But that's typically only if something sticks out as sounding weird. Yeah, I used to use um, one of those all-purpose meters, and I forget the manufacturer now, of course, off the top of my head. But um, they've got some of those great ones which have all of that stuff built in, you know, just a hundred different ways of viewing your audio. Yeah. And I found myself never looking at anything other than just the straight meter. Yeah. So eventually when, the, when I got the Duro stuff, I just turned all of that other th- stuff off and... Now I just keep it very simple. And like you, yeah, my, my setup is calibrated, and I always listen at the same levels for what I'm doing. And between just a quick peek at the durometer to make sure my ears aren't deceiving me, yeah, I'm pretty close to where I need to be most of the time. So For sure. We have one of those meters on the, uh, on the mix stage. The mix stage has its own whole monitor that's dedicated to nothing but metering. And yeah, I'd never look at it. <laughs> I just don't. And it's got the cool like 3D wave thing that's 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 yep. moving over time and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and what? I just I don't use it. I will say the metering inside of the Pro Limiter and the new Pro Tools, it's really killer because it does show you the nice line as it relates to the uh, LKFS that you've been that you've been trying to hit. So you can see how dynamic your mix is in relation to into what's happening, um, which is really nice. I actually do watch that line a little bit. Um, as you know, I'll play something down and look at it, and it'll be like, oh, yeah, that's nice and dynamic, and it's cool. Or sometimes it'll be flat, and it'll just be sitting right on that thing, depending on what I'm doing. Yeah, I think that's the nice thing about using metering that in this way, is that you're mixing, and then you're only using the metering kind of as a, just a double check. You yeah. Know? I think when you start mixing to a meter, then, I don't know, I think the creativity comes out of what you're doing, and you end up trying to push yourself too hard to hit the exact spot on the meter you know you need to be, rather than just trying to do what your real job is and tell the story and be emotive and be dynamic and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. You can totally make a crappy, flat, uninteresting mix, hit the spec every time. Yeah, delivering the spec is the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I, yeah. it's it's so funny that there's thread upon thread upon thread online about how to do it. It's like, I mean, it's pretty simple. Adjust the gain <laughs> as necessary and you're pretty much there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you're at the end of your mix and you're shooting a little hot or a little soft, then you just crank your master up or down a little bit, and then you're, you'll hit the spec and you're done. Yeah. Um, with regards to spectral um, analysis, I will tend to look at my sound effects after the fact, inside of RX on the spectral side. I almost don't send anything through my library that, that I don't at least look at inside of RX, sometimes just because it's pretty. But other times, because there's interesting things happening in there, and sometimes, especially when you're recording at 96K and you're recording at higher sample rates, you'll see stuff that's way up there that your ears may not be hearing um, that you may want to address so that when you do pitch things down that, that it doesn't get weird. Sometimes there'll be squeals and electronic stuff, depending on how you recorded things, that you won't hear because they're up at something just out of the range of hearing. And you do want to go ahead and address those things and, and get them handled. Yeah. The only time I use spectral analysis is if I'm doing sound design and I'm trying to do something quote-unquote creative with that sound. But I, I rarely ever check my mixes. I rarely never check my mixes through spectral analysis or anything like that. Well, you know, what's interesting, I I was reviewing one of my coworkers' uh, musical compositions the other day, and I did throw it in the spectrogram as I was listening to it. And um, 
I, I said, hey, man, you're missing a big opportunity here. You've got all of this all of this opportunity on your low end in these spots, and you're not using it, and you really could if you wanted to. You've got headroom. You've got availability here. And so it was really easy for me to communicate that, that to him mm-hmm. um, because he could see it, and he could clearly see exactly where a lot of his energy was that, you know, and a lot of where his composition was sitting. And it always helps me to kind of look at it in a different way, and it especially helps me as a teaching tool and as a communication tool with my coworkers for sure. Totally. Yeah, as a conversation piece, for, absolutely. Yep. William Sannon also emailed us. He said, Dear Tonebenders Trio, thank you a lot for your podcast. They help me a lot with my work and show me the way to do great sound design. Only recently I've got into field recording, but I've been doing sound design before I ever heard about the term, relying mainly on stock sound. Since I'm a complete audio addict and we don't have a big film media industry here in Belgium, I greatly appreciate the effort you take to inform fellow sound designers around the world about the art of sound and noise. As Danny Boyle once said, cinema's secret weapon. Thanks a lot and keep this going. I'm listening. Kind regards, Willem. So thanks, Willem. That was cool. Yeah, we, um, we like geeking on this stuff. It's fun. Yes, we do. Thank you for the comment. Always appreciate kind words. So it's just me and Dustin today, and we're going to talk about a couple of things. The first thing we're going to talk about is backup systems. Everyone knows why you do backups, but the question is how do you approach it? And I think one of the more important things to consider when you're setting up your backup system, is to consider how you're going to retrieve things in the future. Yes, you need robustness, and yes, you need redundancy, but the other question is, when it comes time to restore something from backups, how does your system allow you to find that thing and get it back up in front of you quickly? So, Dustin, when you were at BBDO, um, who was in charge of the backups there, or how did you interact with the backups? The backups for the agency at large were handled by the agency IT staff, so we didn't touch those... I have no idea actually what they did and how they did it. I know that they had some local tape storage and then some offsite storage as well. And they were in the process of transitioning all of that stuff probably away from tape and into more cloud-based storage. Uh, again, the implementation and the execution of that I'm not quite aware of. In terms of the studio, when I arrived, there was zero backup procedure. Nice. Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> all the editors and uh, audio engineers and animators, they were all responsible for backing up their projects as best as they could and, and in whatever way they saw fit. Wow. So, of course, that was always a big thing. When I started, I said, you know, we don't, we don't have a business without the assets we create. Like, that is our product. So if we lose it, we are done. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so so I think after preaching a little bit, I eventually, you know, got the ear of some people, and we began slowly implementing some backup procedures. The first and foremost was figuring out how to archive and recall our masters, because as a national global advertising agency, once a project is done, the finishing house will ship back the master files. Now, traditionally, that has come in tape format, either Digibeta, Beta SP, way back when, uh, three-quarter inch. Recently, obviously, with HD formats, you get HD cam and all that. But I really don't like tape-based storage, for at least for our purposes. Um, so I moved us into a completely file-based workflow. So we were getting uncompressed quick times of the final spots. We would get all the mixed stems, and we'd archive those, and then we... A 30-second spot in an uncompressed format is about 6 to 7 gigs. Yeah, so you might have a package for one spot that has maybe, I don't know, 15 different versions. 
Right, because you're doing without titles and you're doing with different tags. And yeah, that type of we're stuff. getting masters, generics. We're getting all of the languages. We're getting all of the markets. We're getting any visual tweak that is a separate master, and we receive that file and we archive it. Now you can see that space would go up exponentially, of course, and thankfully storage is cheap enough that we could do it with bare bones SATA drives. So what we did is we eventually settled on a system that would bring in just a pair of OEM SATA drives, and we'd archive to that, and then we'd catalog that. Those drives would move off into storage, and whenever we needed to recall it, we'd just go pull the disk out of, out of storage. Thankfully, we kept most of our often used formats on a RAID system, so we could just pull those back as we needed them. But that's how we were doing archive at the time. The next step above that would be to sort out some kind of long-term off-site archival system. And the notion there was to leverage cloud-based solutions to host things that we didn't need access to immediately. So you're really talking about archive, because archive and backup are, are two different things. Yep. And we're talking about archive here. So we're, we've got our stuff backed up. We know if one drive dies, we've got a, a second safety copy. We're fine there. Now, how do we do archival? And you don't generally need to pull back from archival immediately unless it's a catastrophic failure. And if it's a catastrophic failure, you've got other problems like you know, your facility doesn't exist anymore. So, <laughs> But we need something that's relatively quick. So we did a little bit of research, and my initial find was Amazon offers a service called Glacier, which is long-term archival and unlimited data in. You only pay for data out, which is excellent. And the only downside is that recall takes about four hours. So your, your data isn't immediately accessible. Right. Because basically Amazon holds the stuff, they catalog it, some of it goes offline. If you need to pull it back, they've got to restore it, all that kind of stuff. So, but the price is ridiculous. It would cost you about $100 a year for some astronomical amount of terabytes of storage. That's really cheap. And Amazon handles the redundancy and all that stuff. So that's the way we were moving. It was kind of a tiered approach. And then in terms of the workstations themselves on a smaller level, um, we would do nightly backups. We had it. We started with a base image for every machine. So again, catastrophic failure. I know I can get this machine back up within 25 minutes, and that's only to image the machine, get it back out on the floor. Then we would do nightly backups of the system drive, nightly backups of the project drive. All projects were hosted on a shared RAID 5 system. So you know you can have one disk fail at any given time without losing your data. Then once projects were finished, they were moved on to the same archival system that the masters used. So we would basically clone a drive, and then eventually that would all live in the cloud-based archival system as well. So we had tiers across everything. So you said earlier you had issues with tape-based archival. What kind of issues did you have with them? It's a pain in the ass is what it is. It's just because it takes time to shuttle around the tape? It takes time to shuttle around the tape. You have to find a place to put the tape. you got to have someone who understands how to work with tape and tape drives and tape-based backup systems. You know, the, one of the unique things about our place is that we had to recall stuff immediately. You know, we would get requests that literally had to go out in the next five minutes. So to me, it makes sense to just keep it in file format. 
You know, the way the workflow there was that we would get sent a master tape, whatever format that tape was, say a, a digibeta. And the first thing you would do once you got the digibeta in is digitize it. So I was like, well, why don't you just skip the middleman and don't send us the, the tape. Just send us the file. That's all we ever use anyway. <laughs> right. You know, if I need to go back to a tape, tapes are generated for this stuff all the time. I can go to Preferred Media or one of these other large archival and storage places and get the tape if I need it. But for me, I, I, I need the, the asset, the master quality in the easiest to use format. And for us, that was an uncompressed QuickTime and 2448 two-pop stems. One of the things that always concerned me about using SATA drives, I guess, as backup, not necessarily archive, right, but as backup, mm -hmm. was reliability on those. Like, how long can you leave a drive on the shelf and then expect to plug it in and have it spin up reliably? Yeah, your, your lead time is about uh, five years on a drive. Yeah. But um, that's what archive is for. Right. You know, so if both of your sets fail... Then you go to archive and you pull it back. Right. And for archive, you're, you're talking Glacier. What, are, what were you using outside of that? Were you using SATA as archive as well? No. we would. Uh, the, well, the plan was to not use SATA as archive, just as backup. Right. So the plan was to have local copies of everything backed up. And then if something were to catastrophically happen to those backups, we could then retrieve it from archive. You know, so the two would work in parallel. It's basically one system, but they work a little bit differently. They push the same problem a little bit differently, and the local copies were for immediate access and immediate recall, and the archive was... That's what an archive is for. You know, you only need to pull out of the archive when you absolutely need it. It's not an everyday... It shouldn't be an everyday thing. Yeah, exactly. The, we actually do use a tape-based system for our archive, mm -hmm. but we are going to have to move off of it because of some of the issues you were talking about, specifically the fact that the technology that we're using is pretty old and dying, and consequently the parts to the drive are starting to become more obscure, and the people that know how to work on that drive are starting to become fewer and fewer. Yeah, tape's, tape's an expensive investment. It, it's very robust. I mean, we can go back years and years and years, and we do frequently to our tapes and, uh, and pull stuff up. But yeah, it does take time. It's not nearly as fast as pulling it from a drive. Yeah, if you have the CapEx to spend, I mean, tape's great. It really, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, I think, depending on the type of facility you are, and we were this type of facility, it just didn't make any sense for us. Um, sure, yeah. And, you know, you're dealing with a lot more data than we are, too. To give an overview of exactly what we do, we only work with audio, so we're not dealing with the high-res, uncompressed digital video files that the, the video companies would or the agencies that, that house the video companies would. So, you know, we do work, we do have a lot of video files on our drives, but they're typically, you know, compressed and they're, and yep. they're not a big deal. So we run a tape-based backup every night at midnight. We run another manual one in the morning that gets taken off-site. So we have both a, uh, an on-site tape archive that goes all the way back to, you know, the beginning, and we have an off-site one that goes all the way back to the beginning. We also have a, a RAID array that sweeps all the drives and writes new data in um, one, two, three, four, five times a day. Um, which is really nice. That's has, that has completely saved many people's asses in the past because it's automatic. And that array has enough data on it to store everything from the entire facility back about five or six months, maybe even a little longer than that. How much space does that array have? 
Uh, I think it's four terabytes, something like that. Oh, wow. Which is yeah. not insane, you know. No. Yeah, it's nice when you deal with just one medium. <laughs> yeah. You know, with the uh, the software we use is Retrospect. Yep. And Retrospect has the ability to, um, you know, it handles all those catalogs. And you have to, you kind of have to babysit that program. Um, but if you if you can work through its quirks, it's pretty reliable and pretty solid. Yeah, Retrospect's been around for years and years. It's a respected, pretty respected name. It's weird that there's no competition for it, though. I would love to see something else with a way better user interface to it. But I mean, it's it's a solid program, so it does what it does. But it just it does take forever to work with. Yeah. But the nice thing about the way that Retrospect handles disk-based backup is it will uh, groom it. So basically, once your disk gets you know X percent full, I have mine set at eighty percent. It'll just take the oldest chunks and start deleting them yep. from its backups. So you've always got whatever the last six or eight months worth of data was um, just in a running form on your hard drives that are there that you can just pull up and it's just transferring files over the network at that point, which is really nice. And so, you know, that's always the first look. And then the second look for us is to the tapes. Yep. Now, these are both relatively industrial solutions for relatively industrial facilities. If you're an audio guy at the house or in a smaller space, you know, and it's just you in one chair, how do you think the best way to approach a backup situation like that is, especially when you're the one that's kind of in charge of it? Yeah. So for my own business and studio, I just took the same methodology that I had applied at the agency and just scaled it down. The nice thing about a well-thought-out plan in any type of IT problem is that it should scale from the smallest single operation to the largest multi-global corporation you can think of. So I just, yeah, I took the exact same things that we were doing and I just scaled it down. So I have a base image for my studio rig that if the whole thing blows up, I know I can get back to a working state again in like 25 minutes or whatever it takes to get image that machine. How often do you make that image? I have a base image, and that image is pretty much there, and I never change it unless I get a new piece of software that I know I want to be a part of that image. So the way You know how we approach that is we have two hard drives internal to each of our Macs, mm-hmm. and we just clone them regularly. We'll just clone one straight to the other. Yep. Now, if we get hit with the missile, we lose the Macs. Well, so I'm starting, I'm starting even earlier than that. I'm saying, like, when you fresh install that machine... And that's the base at where that, that machine starts. That's your image, right? That's what you keep. So it's an installed machine, but no, no trimmings, really. You know, maybe it's got Pro Tools and maybe the Waves bundle, and that's it. It's the quickest way to get yourself back up, get the machine back up, get the machine back working. And that's where I start. Now, and you keep that, like, on Glacier, or you keep that out somewhere else? I actually I just keep that here, yeah. I keep that locally. Yeah. So that's step one for me. And then step two is, like you said, is to clone the system drive nightly and clone my project drive nightly. So I have those things backed up. Then step three is project archival or project backup and all that stuff, which I do the same thing. I have just a set of SATA drives that I clone everything to and I keep here. And then long-term archival, same thing. I use Glacier. That's cool. Yeah, you know, Glacier is relatively new, and I haven't messed with it yet. The pricing is right. You know, the Amazon has S3, and they've been using, you know, they've been putting out S3 for all kinds of online storage forever, but the pricing on S3 was never right. That was what always, you know, caused people to not use it for, 
you know, cloud-based backups. Yeah, S3 is great, but it's it's just for a different audience. Yeah, exactly. Glacier is made for archival. S3 is made for storage. And that's yeah, just... S3 is data that you need to access regularly. Yeah, it's two totally different things. Now, the one other concern that I would personally have with cloud-based storage has nothing to do with Amazon, right? Because I think S- I think the Amazon infrastructure is very solid. I think they could get hit with the missile, and and you'd still be fine for you know for the most part. They'd figure out how to get most of it up, and they're distributed, and they're double redundant, and all of that. The concern I would have, especially as a long-term play, would be bandwidth, because it seems like what's happening now is all of your services are moving towards data caps. And so even though bandwidth is getting faster and faster and faster, these caps are showing up everywhere. And it, it would be a concern to me to spend a lot of data in a capped system. And the problem is a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the systems that you have in place right now are in danger of being capped at any point. It's very hard to find one that's not. So if bandwidth caps are an issue, uh, again, it's just you have to take stock of what is your what, how how quickly do you need access to your data? Because you can with Amazon and a lot of these other services, you can mail them a drive, tell them what you need to restore, they'll load it and mail it back to you. Oh, that's cool. So can you deal with the two day turnaround? If you can, then no big deal. You know, bandwidth isn't an issue. That's how I got data in to Amazon. I didn't upload it because that would have taken ages. Yeah, I loaded up some drives and we sent it off to them and they they populated our our tree. But, you know, if you do need that four-hour window... Well, you're not going to get it with download speed right now anyway if you're pulling a lot of data back. Yeah, and again, it's like... Maybe, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger thought than that. It's not just, is four hours enough? It's, it's, can I use four hours for the things I really need and then ship a drive for the other stuff? Can that work? You could split it up. But, yeah, a lot of those cloud-based services, they will offer physical, physical services on top of, you know, the, the quote-unquote virtual stuff. Yeah, that's cool. That's something I hadn't really thought of. And it's, you know, because I do really worry about the fact that all of these all of these uh, telecom companies are just moving towards capping both personal and business upload streams specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, like, I understand where they're coming from, I guess. But I don't know. Well, they don't want guys serving up high-res video <laughs> from their house is what they don't want, you know. Yeah, and it's business 101, if someone's going to use your service and you can charge them for that service, you probably should charge them for that service. <laughs> yeah. So other things that smaller scale should do, you know, I think a lot of people right now are still burning DVDs of their projects or they're burning drives of their projects when the projects are finished. Um, the concern I would have if, I, if, if my backup system was do a project, burn a drive of it or a DVD of it would be if something catastrophic happened in the midst of that project. I think it's super, super important, and I know you agree with me, Dustin, that you back everything up <clears throat> that's important to you immediately, daily, so that you can get back to something if, if something gets lost. Yeah, if your backup motto is copy over a project once it's finished, then you don't have a backup. And that's so common. There are yeah. so many people that that's exactly how they approach it, if they approach it by that much, even. Yeah, you, you need to be backing up at the least uh, every night, for sure. Yeah. And again, it's like your whole business is based on the assets that you create. If your assets go away, you have no business. 
Okay, so if you're working on a project and all of a sudden all those things are gone, I mean, your 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 project is finished, really. You know, it's you can't call up the director and say, "Hey, I'm not going to be able to deliver your film because it's all gone." <laughs> yeah, it's well, just you can, and you can only do that once. <laughs> yeah, it's not really an acceptable thing, you know. And you know, data is never really gone these days. I mean, you can send it off to a company like Drive Savers or something and have it forensically retrieved if possible. But you're looking at, I mean, in spots, fifty thousand dollars to have that. Yeah. taken care of. So, which for which for most people that means that it doesn't exist. Exactly. So just do yourself a favor and back it up. <laughs> um, I guess we should also, since we're in this kind of space, talk about Gobbler a little bit. Have you messed with that? Yeah, I have. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's a nice service. You know, I, I mean, I'm really into anything that makes it easy for people to keep their data, and Gobbler does that. So, I mean, I'm into it. It wasn't right for me, but yeah, all those types of services are are pretty good. Yeah, we've been looking into it a little bit too. We were going to mainly use it as a uh, as a file transfer service. We weren't going to really use it as an as a backup and archival service. But that's exactly. But it's built as a backup and archival service, and uh, and a lot of people are using it, and it's working out well for a lot of people. Other services that are out there, obviously, Dropbox, SugarSync is out there. Mm-hmm. You can use those again. Those are backups. Those are not archives. Talk to me a little bit, Dustin, about the difference between a backup and an archive. I mean, it seems it may seem obvious, but it may not be to some people. I, a backup is the initial copy of something, and a backup is generally something that you keep around locally, and a backup is something generally that you need access to immediately. Uh, an archive is something that's generally held off-site, generally much more long-term, and generally doesn't have the same time requirements as a backup. Those, those are important differences. It may not seem like much, but they're important differences when you start to think about how to put together your backup procedure. And it's good to separate them because they do have different executions and they exist for different purposes. So yep. Glacier would not be a great backup solution. You know, if I held all of my projects on Glacier and, like you just said, if I go down in the middle of a project, if I'm in the middle of a work session... Sorry, you guys all have to leave for a minimum of four hours right. before I can get any of that stuff back. And that's not okay. I need to be able to get that stuff back right away. Yep. So that's what a backup is for. Yeah, as you said, you need to get to them relatively quickly. And it's not just for catastrophic failures. It's also sometimes just to clear drive space. Yep. You don't have to keep everything on your drive you know, back the, for the last year or so. You can back it up, keep those backups around. Keep your drive space nice and tidy where you can find things. And if your client calls up needing something from six months ago, you still have your backup. You can pull it. You can put it on your drive, work it, manipulate it, and 30 days later you can pull it off again. Yeah, and I think you were saying that your RAID system only goes back six months or so? Yeah, we go back maybe six or eight months, something like that, depending on what's kind of been in the house and what hasn't. Yeah, so that's a sensible backup system, but it's not an archive. You know, an archive would go back to the beginning of time. But keeping stuff around in a backed-up state for six months, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And to your point about tape, you know, some of our tape backups are in a totally different format, you know, six or eight years ago, and so we have to keep that drive around. Yeah. That's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love the antiquated hardware just because you can't get rid of it. Exactly. Program uh, on walkie-talkie. Let's move on. I'd like to talk a little bit about... The perception that some people in the creative industry have about their clients, the way that they work with their clients, the way that they um, either put their clients on their same side or take their clients off of their own side. 
So there was a thread recently on GearSluts called Expectations versus Reality. I'm going to read a little bit of it just as a jumping off point, and then we can get into this. It says, I have pretty much decided to get out of remote recording business effective July 1st, 2013. The reasons are many, but basically the client's expectations have grown while their ability to pay has flatlined. We have three basic clients. We've been doing two of them since they started years ago. The other client we had was a regional symphony orchestra that was just too far away and too time-consuming to continue doing their concerts. One and a half hours of a drive, 13-hour days, and a very small recording fee. One of the two remaining clients was upset with our fee raise and said they had financial problems and could no longer afford us. This one remaining group got a new director this year. She's very good, but somewhat headstrong and thinks she knows a lot more about audio and video recording than she really does. We provide both audio and video recording for the groups we work with. Up until about eight years ago, we only provided the audio recordings. This year has been rather a disaster for our one remaining client. In the past, the group was very forthcoming with technical details, and I felt like I was part of a team. This year has been different, and I feel somewhat like an unwelcome guest instead of a member of the team. When the new director took over, all the old staff left, so it's been a year of reestablishing relationships and trying to get them to be forthcoming with information. The other side was our longtime videographer editor left to return to college, and we have since been using part-time videographers with less than stellar results. The last concert we did for our remaining client has lots of problems, which we talked about in advance with the group. We made the director aware of the problems we faced, but she chose not to listen to what we were telling her. The concert looked very nice visually if you were an audience member, but due to a projection piece... We were not able to put our cameras in our normal locations and had to put them in less than ideal locations due to the fire laws and sightline problems. The upshot was that our camera had to be very wide and the main overall camera was the one we borrowed. It proved to be less than forgiving of low light levels and we got a lot of noise off the camera. We've spent literally days in post trying to make this epic come out the way the director wants it to look. She has the idea that this will look like something from the network TV production of the Grammys, but the whole shoot was done in light levels, less than 100 foot candles, with our cameras shooting wide open and fully zoomed in. Not a good place to be. Thankfully, the audio came off without a hitch. I guess the new generation of choral directors is so intent on doing things that look visually appealing that they have forgotten that it is the voices that people came to hear and not the spectacle they want to provide. The next few concerts we are doing with them will be the last we record. It's been a good relationship over the 43, 23, three years that we have recorded the groups we have served, but it's time for someone else to deal with the problems. That's a doozy. So I've got <laughs> so many problems with that. It's not even funny. <laughs> um, problem number one, don't talk about your clients on the internet. Yeah. Always a good idea. Please. Always a good idea. Ever. Even in positive terms, when you talk ever about your specific clients on the internet, you have to assume they're going to find it. And, and it's just, it's not professional to me to have those conversations on the internet. I understand being frustrated and venting about certain things. And hey, this guy's getting out of that business. So hey, whatever. <laughs> but in a general sense, I really just hate the idea of, and I see, and I see more than just this one person doing it. I saw my, my actor friend doing it yesterday on Facebook. He got on Facebook and was complaining about the way a director was directing him. Don't complain about your clients on the internet, please. Just Yeah. I mean, I think it goes to, it was great working with on such and such a project, and that's pretty much as far as it should go. The end. <laughs> even, the, you know, and I put myself out there quite a bit on the internet. I put a lot of things out there. And even with all of the things about myself and what I, what I do that I put out there on Twitter and on my blog and in this podcast, I almost never talk about my projects directly 
unless I'm using them as a positive case study. And I never, ever will you find me complaining about a specific client or a specific project. Even if you don't mention that client by name, if that client runs across that post, that client will know exactly who you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we all have different experiences, which we love to share with each other, thus this podcast. And we can talk about those experiences, but I think you have to be very mindful of how you phrase it. And I agree, you shouldn't really make it at all obvious that you're talking about anyone in particular. And you should generally just not talk about anyone in particular or any project in particular. If I work on a project, I regularly will say, hey, I had a great time working with this team. Here's the project. But it really doesn't go any farther than that. And I definitely never say anything negative about a client in a public space. I think, yeah, that is incredibly unprofessional. And to your point, they'll find it. Someone will find someone it. Will find Maybe it not somewhere. that client. Maybe not that client, but some other client who's thinking about working with you will find you bad-mouthing you know, some other client. And I mean, they'll probably think twice about bringing you their work. These are digital tattoos that are attached to us now. Everything that we do and put out there um, is immediately cataloged and searchable by anyone that's interested in us at all. And believe yep. me, if I'm a client, I am researching the people that I'm going to work with. Yep. That's just the reality of, you know, the times we live in. I think it's not just client relationships, but generally speaking, everybody gets Googled these days. Everybody gets Facebooked or Twittered or whatever, you know? So yeah. if you're out there at all, just watch what you say for sure. Well, and just generally speaking, just don't don't even in moderate and in mild terms, don't, don't just don't talk about your clients. Just don't do it. It's just bad form, generally speaking. Given that he spoke about his client and his relationship with his clients, other things he you know in this, and I, and I know from other posts that this person has put up that this is not his primary line of business. It's a secondary line of business that mm-hmm. he's getting out of. Generally speaking, though, if you're in any line of business, you're going to stay in business if you're diverse. Um, and he got this comment later in that thread. His primary issue was that he only had three clients in that space. You do have to stay diverse. If you want to, if you want to be in any industry, you have to be as broad as you can. There are lots of people that make the mistake of, of picking up one client that sucks up all of their time. And then exactly as it happened with this person, somebody at that client's company changes positions picks up and leaves, and all of a sudden it's a total shift, and that person may not like you and move on to the next thing, and here you are entirely out of unbooked at that point. Yep. I know locally if at Dallas Audio Post, if our biggest client picked up and left, it would suck, we would hate it, we would still be in business. Absolutely nobody owns more than 10% of our business. Not, not, not our biggest client. Nobody does. That's smart. So that's the other thing. The, main, the biggest issue I had outside of the fact that this is on the internet in the first place was the general headspace he had towards what ended up being an adverse relationship with this new choral director. I feel like when you're put in a position where somebody may be coming at you in a slightly adverse way, there are a hundred decision points you can make in there that will cause that relationship either to work or not. And I'm positive there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff that hasn't been discussed in this thread, which is why it's a bad idea to put it on the Internet in the first place. But I feel like with almost any relationship, you can make it work. And with almost any relationship, you can make it not work. Now, some relationships are not worth the money, and I understand that. But I don't think the money was the primary issue on this one. I think it was a creative difference. And we've talked about this before. 
if you run into a creative difference with somebody, you have to be able to navigate it in a way that you can retain your integrity as a professional, but they can also get the project they want. And I see this from young people a fair amount that are still working into it, and they are the most experienced audio people that they know. They have not surrounded themselves with people that are better than them at this. They've surrounded themselves with their clients who are not audio experts, right? If my client was an audio expert, my client would not need me. My client is in charge of his project, and he needs me to execute his audio. And some people don't understand that relationship. They expect their clients to be the audio expert. And they, they look down on their clients for not being audio experts. And I see this, I don't see it all the time, and I never see it from people that are really good. And I never see it from the big success stories. I see it from people that are starting out. I see it from people that struggle sometimes. And I think it is a major source of people struggling. Your client is a collaborator with you. The idea that the client is always right is incorrect. Um, sometimes the client is wrong. Despite that, the client is always worthy of your respect and the client's time must always be respected. And if you can maintain that, if you can always respect your client with regards to how you approach all of their requests, then you'll end up in a much better spot. Yes, your clients are not audio experts. Yes, they will suggest things that may not be the best ideas. It's your job as an audio professional to have a respectful, reasonable conversation with your client about those things, to present them options, if your client trusts and respects you as an audio person, then, then they'll let you do your job. Um, sometimes they'll give you more latitude than you need. Sometimes clients have a very specific vision, and they have something very, very specific that they want to execute. And they will not have the language sometimes to get that across to you. And they will drive you, and they will push you, and sometimes they will push you in ways that are not in the direction of getting them exactly what they hear in their head. When those things happen, and this only comes with experience, but when those things happen, your job is less to listen to what the client is telling you and more to figure out what the client wants and execute that. And it sounds like a weird distinction, but it's, it's a very real one. Sometimes when a client says this is too loud, they don't mean it's too loud. Sometimes what they mean is that they're hearing too much bass or they're hearing too much mid-range or they're hearing too much distortion and they use the wrong words, but it's your job as a professional to figure out the intent. And the way you do that is by asking questions. And, and when you ask questions, when you get direction that doesn't make sense and you do ask questions and you go back and you figure those things out, that's how you develop that relationship. And if you don't, and I've seen people do this too, if you don't ask questions, if you get bad direction and you don't ask questions and you just execute what they ask for, even though it's not what they want, and you do it, and I've seen people they call it mixing angry. <laughs> I've seen people do angry mixes where the client asks for something, you know, unreasonable because they're prescribing solutions as opposed to uh, communicating what they're asking for. And the engineer will get frustrated and he'll give them exactly like literally what they're looking for. And the client will get frustrated because the client is probably personally frustrated because, yes, you gave them exactly what they asked for. No, it's not exactly what they want. No, this relationship and this project are not working at this point, and it's frustrating because days have passed now, and we've gone through these rounds, and it's not happening. And that's where those relationships fall apart. And I feel like in this thread, some of that may have gone down. It's so important to figure out the core issue when you get pushback. 
and to ask why, 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 all the way down, maybe not in that form, but to figure out why, 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 why. You want this louder? Why? Um, well, because I don't feel enough emotion there. Okay, so you want to feel more of this type of emotion there. Why? Well, because overall the piece is, is feeling a little long. Oh, the piece is feeling long. Okay, well, let's figure that out. You know, And so if, if you, you can have a reasonable discussion and come down and, you, and you'll end up with a better solution than if you just go verbatim and crank the L1 on something, etc., I feel like I'm on my soapbox, and I knew I was about to get on it, <laughs> but... Yeah, you put it up it, there really high, too. I can't even get up there. <laughs> it just... I, I see these things on the internet, and they bother me, they bother me, they bother me, because I, I feel like it's its just a case study and people doing it wrong. And if you look through the thread... No, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I mean, to me, that, that thread smacks of entitlement is it, my biggest problem. Yeah, it. it does. And it's so not the right attitude to have. And there are people that are chiming in there saying, look, man, whatever, you know. And But there are so many people in that thread that are agreeing with him yeah. that are saying, yeah, clients suck, you know. And it's just like, oh, you're, just, you're asking to put yourself out of business if you think your client sucks. Yeah, I mean, there are realities to this industry that are less than great. You know, this it's a difficult time out there right now. We get it. We all get it. But... To get pissed off at your client because you can't put your microphones where you want to put your microphones? I mean, come on. What are you, an eight-year-old? Get over it. Yeah. And you know what? If you can't make that recording sound good with your microphones a little bit off-center, you know what? Don't come back. <laughs> I'll hire somebody who can. You know, I, I get it. I mean, everybody wants their stuff in the ideal position, but, you know, the projects change. Projects move, and you have to be able to problem-solve. And if you're going to walk in there and your number one solution isn't available and then throw a hissy fit, I mean, what kind of professional are you? And why should you come back? I mean, that to me is just crazy. Even if you don't throw the hissy fit in front of the client, even if you go back to your studio and throw the hissy fit, I just think it's the wrong headspace. Exactly. I agree with you. I agree with you totally. I mean, you're there to be a problem solver, and you're, all you're doing at that point is just creating more. And I, I just I don't think that's right at all. And it's not your client's fault, you know? And who are you to say that they're not coming there for the spectacle? You have no idea why they're coming there. You're going there for the voice, but everybody else could be, they couldn't care less. Who knows? You know, so don't, do your job. Shut up, <laughs> do your job. Because it's an awesome job. So don't bitch about it, you know? And we, are all, we all get frustrated, and that's totally natural, and it's fine. And like I said, there are a lot of realities to this industry at the moment that are difficult to deal with, but... Blaming it on a client is just so misdirected. That anger is so misdirected, it's not even funny. You know, most of the reason why this industry is so difficult is because of this industry and what we've done to it and what technology has done to it and the way that we've failed to communicate to each other in successful terms. It has very little to do with clients. Very well, little to and do with clients. Sometimes I feel like people don't give their clients enough respect for those clients' role in their own projects. You know, if you get a project in, and this client has been living with that project for the last six or eight months or whatever, if you're talking about, say, a film, right, and this client's been living with that project for a year before it comes to you, and now all of a sudden you've got all these opinions, well, here's the deal. This client knows exactly why everything happened. happened. They know why all the story points are how they are. They know why they weren't able to get the shot that you wanted there. And they know, you know, maybe there was a logistical thing or whatever. The client just came out of the whole process of shooting that is, is harrowing. 
um, sometimes to go be on a shoot and have a million things going wrong. And you're just totally doing triage when you're on a shoot. And then at the end of it, then you have your edit, you know, and you're putting your edit together and you're kicking yourself for not catching certain shots or you're, you're loving certain other shots and you, you spend weeks and months on the edit and the edit comes, then you hand it to the audio guy is criticizing all of these things that you know why they didn't happen or your audio guy complains about certain things, even if it's internal, whatever. But this, but still, I think as an audio person, you have to empathize with the entirety of the project in order to really do your own job well. Something that I did a couple of years ago was I went and bought myself a Canon 7D and I started shooting some shorts as a director yep. and as a DP and as an editor. And the reason I did that was less to go make shorts, which was fun, you know, I enjoy making shorts, but it was more to figure out the headspace of my clients. It was more to really thoroughly understand where my clients are when they come to me, you know. I think that the biggest reason why Ben Burt is such a fantastic sound designer is because he was also an editor. Exactly. And he did all these other things. And he understands his job now as a sound designer much more deeply than if he was only ever a sound designer. Yeah, ditto Walter Murch, you know. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All the, I mean, all the greats, they are very few of them. I can't think of any really off the top of my head that only do sound or have only done sound. Yeah, it, minimally, they go to film school and get the full film degree, yep. you know, yep. which I never it's, did. It's so incredibly important, I think, to understand the other side of the table. And, and I, I tell this to students when I work with them. Audio is very interesting because we're pretty much the only, the only person or the only specialized person that needs to understand the language of everyone in front of them. Right, because audio is typically the last stage of a project. Audio yep. posts is typically the last stage of a project. So you have to be able to speak the language and empathize with the operators and artists that came before you. You have to. You have to. The, the editor doesn't have to be able to talk audio, but you have to be able to talk editorial. Absolutely. Right? That's a very interesting dynamic. Absolutely. So it's, it's really your responsibility to understand the jobs of everyone who came before it got to you. Yeah. And that's a lot of what I learned from going through that and continue to learn as I continue to do that. I was out on a shoot two days ago shooting video, shooting a music video. It's an entirely different discipline and it's something that I am not an expert in, um, but it's something that I enjoy and it's something that I continue to do just so that I can continue to keep my head in that. But the process of going through and shooting these couple of shorts... It taught me so much. Yes, it totally taught me the language, right? I had to learn the language of filmmaking in order to read the literature on filmmaking so that I could learn what the hell I was doing with the camera so that I could shoot something in the first place. Yep. And I learned a lot about, you know, the technical requirements of how to shoot the film look with a DSLR. And then I had to learn the language of editing so that I could edit, the, So again, so I could read the material, so I could learn how to edit. And then I learned exactly how hard it is to put an edit together because it's hard. It is. You know, sometimes, yeah, you would love another second or two of a pause there, but, oh, damn, I didn't shoot that much footage, you know? Right? Yeah, <laughs> and these are things that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you ever tried to do it or unless you ever sat with an editor or put any real time into understanding what it is that they do beyond just a cursory level. Yeah, and, and editing is problem-solving just like everything Absolutely. else. Editing is primarily problem-solving. It's storytelling and problem-solving. Yep. It's those two things. 
and I learned all this language and it was so incredibly helpful to me the next time I had a director sitting behind me and we were discussing that director's project because I can say, because A, I could totally empathize with everything that had happened up to that point, right? And so it allowed me to continue to help solve his problems, right, with regards to how certain things are working. And B, I could speak his language. It's just like you said. I can't expect him to speak my language, right? And I shouldn't expect him to speak my language. No, it's great if they do. You know, we had Daniel Ryan on last week, and he's a sound guy. So it's awesome to have those conversations. But it's not his job. It's not his job. And I can't get mad at him if he has no clue what I'm doing. Because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. The, only, the main thing that matters to him is, is he getting out of it at the end what he needs from you? Yep. You know? Totally. You know, a director may not have to know exactly what's inside the actor's head, but the director has to be happy with the performance that he captures on film. Yep. Um, and I think, I feel like, I feel like sound design and acting are very kindred in the process because with both of those, you're, you're creating the emotion. You know, your visuals are your style, your edit is your story, and your sound is your emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like both the actor and your sound guy are, are really working hard on the emotional side of whatever the project is. And, and I feel like the language is very similar there. I, you know, like I said, I tell students, it's like you, we're pretty much the only people that have to understand everybody in front of us. Once they pass off the edit to you, if they want, they can wash their hands of the whole thing and walk away. <laughs> you I, can't. I, I think overall, the, the main thing people should take out of it is that the headspace, at least as a starting point, should be we are all sitting here trying to do good work, right? My client and I may have a differing opinion on what good work looks like or sounds like. But fundamentally, we're still trying to do good work. Yep. If you slip into the headspace of my client doesn't care about this work, my client is stupid, my client doesn't care about what I'm trying to do, you're doing it wrong. Your client does care because your client cares about his own project. Your client is trying to do good work. Yep. And if you're trying to do good work right there along with your client, in the end, you'll end up doing good work. And you have to understand that you are not the last call on what is good work. That's a fact. That is an objective position. So you might not agree, but that is very different from it not being right. Yep. Don't ever forget that. Yeah, your big Hollywood mixers will tell you all the time, that's not my mix. That's the director's mix. Yep, absolutely. You know, the director is the one that makes those calls as to how things work. And it's, you know, that's, it's important to, um, to respect that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the ultimate relationship that you're trying to navigate when you're doing these projects is whoever that person is that has the last call, making sure that they're happy with what, they're, with what you're doing and what they are tasking you with doing. And of course, throughout that working relationship, as we've discussed in the past, it should be a dialogue, not necessarily a one-way flow from client to you. But at the end of the day, they're the ones telling you what's good and what isn't. And just because you don't agree doesn't mean that they're stupid. Yep. Just means you don't agree. That's right. You know, and as and as adults, we should be able to not agree. Exactly. And the the trick is not agreeing and still doing good work. You know what I Absolutely. mean? Absolutely. How can I still be proud of what I did and have my client happy? The trick is the basic debate tactic, right? If you disagree with someone, that's fine, but you have to understand their position. Exactly. And that's really difficult. So if you have a different opinion of what a scene should sound like, 
that's fine. But you have to really try hard to understand why they want it to sound different. Yep. You know, and you may think that that's the wrong direction. Again, that's okay. But you have to be able to say, you know what, this direction is valid also. Yep. It's not mine, and I don't like it. It's not what I would do, but it's also a valid opinion. Yeah, and sometimes you just have to be able to let it go. Yeah, you know? exactly. I had a film I was working on, uh, I guess it was a year or so ago, and there was a scene where there were a couple of people speaking outside, um, and we were hearing them inside. And from a literal sense, it still kind of made sense. I understood why we, why we were hearing them inside. Because we were still seeing them. If we're seeing them, we should be hearing them, and I understood that. With that said, for creative reasons, I felt like we shouldn't hear them at all because I was trying to allow space for something else that was about to happen. Mm-hmm. My director didn't agree with me. He wanted to hear those people because he was seeing them. I made my case. I told him my thoughts and my reasons for it. He listened to them. In the end, he felt like he wanted to hear those people. I put them in the mix, and there they are. And it didn't sound bad. You know what I mean? It wasn't wrong. It was just a creative difference of opinion. Yep, and in the end, you know, he's gonna he's gonna win that he's gonna win and that I, battle, and and I have to be able to roll with it and not be upset and not have something like that affect other decisions as you know later on in the film. Yep, I mean it's really important something that I still struggle with sometimes to remember that there is no such thing as bad globally. Right, it might be bad to you, but to someone else, it might be perfect. Right? This is a subjective thing that we're all doing here. Yep. So you, I can't say to you, this mix is perfect and have everyone in the world agree because that's crazy. There is no, there's no barometer to say where perfection is. It's completely up to the listener. Yep. It's completely you know? subjective. So, yeah, again, I, I think you can disagree, but you can't get into the mindset of you're wrong. This is the way it has to be because that's never the case. It could be anyway. That's why sound is so fun. It could sound like anything. Yep. Anything could sound like anything. And you know why I think it kind of does devolve into that more often than it probably should is because sound is a very emotional medium. And it's also a very high-resolution medium. People's ears are super, super sensitive, especially in relationship to their eyes. And when people hear things that are not exactly as they want them, they react emotionally mm-hmm. on either side of that equation. You know, it's an emotional medium. People react emotionally. And as somebody that's working within that medium, you really do have to be able to understand that the person on the other side of the table may be reacting even slightly irrationally because of how emotional a medium we're working in. Yeah. And we have to be able to let things roll off our backs and we have to be able to, you know, not get caught up in that. Yep. And emotion is a very personal thing. Very personal. Yeah. You know, that's why I refuse and I really kind of dislike the sound design competitions that happen because I don't think it's really fair. Yeah. I saw a, uh, I saw a Twitter thing the other day. It was the, uh, the classic uh, Batman slapping Robin. Oh, yeah. And it was, um, it was uh, hey, which kick drum is better, this one or that one? And Batman slaps Robin and says, it's not a competition, it's art. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. Perfect. Well said. I think that I think we can end it there. <laughs> so this has been the soapbox known as the Tone Benders episode ten. <laughs> yes. So if you think your client is stupid, just give us a call and we'll berate you. That's right. Just play the episode <laughs> one more time yeah. and you'll be good. But seriously, your clients aren't stupid, even if they disagree with you. They just disagree with you, and that's a totally different thing. I will say this. 
if you're not backing your stuff up and your clients are hiring you, clients might be stupid. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but then again, if you're not backing your stuff up, you're stupid. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, that was all kinds of fun, and I'm glad we did that. And, you know, we'll yeah, get back to fun. doing all kinds of geeky sound noisy things in the next episode or so. But I, I had to get that off my chest. And so thank you all for indulging me. Yes, me too. <laughs> I don't think I got quite as high as you, but... <laughs> It just uh, I was, I was it like three, me, three, so fours. I'm over it. I'm done. It's going to roll off my back. I agree. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, there are, there are realities to this industry that are incredibly difficult. You know, there was a study in 2011, I think, that video post-production is a dying industry. There's less, one of the top 10 dying industries. Yeah, in I think I saw America. that study. Yeah. Um, you know, there's less revenue, less facilities by quite an astronomical number. So we get it, you know, budgets aren't the same, it's not enough work, so on and so forth. But that is not your client's fault. It's not your client's fault. No. And if you're having troubles in the industry, go get a mirror, find one, look at it, and say, how can I make this better? How can I make this better? Not, oh my gosh, look at all these people around me who are screwing over what I love to do. I think it's more specifically, what am I offering that is valuable? What am I doing that's worth people paying me money for? Yeah, exactly. Take personal stock of yourself. Take personal stock of you and your business and your skill set and make sure that you're doing something that is a added value to anyone's project. And this is business 101. You know, what is your competitive advantage over the person next to you? What service can you offer that the other facility or other sound designer or other student yeah. can't? And if you can come up with nothing then you're always going to have a hard time finding work. You're always going to have a hard time finding work. So you need to think very long and hard about, you know, how can you position yourself as being someone unique? Because there are tons of schools pumping kids out left and right yeah, to do audio work. Yeah. I mean, it really is insane. Into, like I just said, a shrinking industry, right? That's, those two things don't necessarily match up. So competition is pretty fierce. And if you're just... You know, I say this again to students. It's like, if you're just coming out of school, look around at the person next to you. They have the same skill set as you. Now, they don't have the same life experience as you. They don't have the same background as you. They don't have the same interests as you. So how can you figure out how to take this shared knowledge and then for yourself, build something unique out of that, right? You've got the foundation, then figure out some some little thing about you, the, your approach or your aesthetic or whatever it is that makes you unique from the person that's sitting right next to you. And that will keep you busy for a long time. Yeah. I would also say as you're evaluating that stuff, you need to ask what would it take for someone else to reach that level of equivalency with me? So if the specific yeah. thing that I have over my competitors is the gear that I own, that may be an advantage, but it's not a sustainable one. Um, it's something that people will catch up to. That used to be what this industry was founded on. Yeah. You know, it was, why do you need a commercial facility? Well, because they're the only ones who can do what they do because they have the gear that they have. Exactly. You know, I think the democratization of technology has really eradicated that completely. So it's got to be something different. Yeah, and it, and it freaks people out. It freaks out the old timers, but I see it as a, as a positive thing. Yeah, me too. I think, because I think it it brings it back to, Creativity being the biggest thing, 
Yeah. It's really, that's your selling point, you know? And Well, and skills, you know, the other skills that you have. If yeah. you can communicate with your clients better than the guy next to you, then you're in a better spot, just in a general sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Or if you can do things like play piano, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. If you have these skills and these skills add to you collectively as a whole, then those things add up to the distinction between you and the next guy. And again, you do have to evaluate those things. You know, if, if, if one of my key differentiators is the fact that I can build a WordPress website, well, that's cool and all that, but there's a lot of guys that can figure that yep. out real freaking quick, yep. you know? Yeah, it's got to be something unique to you. That's I think that that really is a little closer to your personality, like you as a human being, th- Absolutely. than, you know, your ability to build a WordPress site. Because if I, I wouldn't say, Renee's a great guy, he can build a WordPress site. Right. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> I would advise that you should find some kind of a competitive advantage that really is it comes from a little bit deeper within yourself because those are the one those are the ones that will sustain. Yep. Cool. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thank you guys for dealing with us in our soapboxes today. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out on facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net. We can see our archives and leave a comment or If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy, or a at tonebenders.net. 